Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you Wednesday, November 18th, as we wind down the 2020 tennis season. A few days left at the NITO ATP Finals. It's Djokovic and Medvedev tonight in London. Today, we've got a special guest, so let's get to a very cool interview with a good friend and good colleague, a person who's been involved in tennis for a long time. It's Mert Ertunga, guy you can find on the web at murtovstennisdesk.com, also at Tennis Dunyasi, also, and you probably found him here before, at Tennis with an Accent. Mert's been a longtime player in the game. I've been, in, I've been fortunate to get to know him and did so at Wimbledon, where we sat next to each other in the media room. Lo and behold, I found out a lot about his tennis past, which has been pretty successful. He was the captain of the 1993 Davis Turkish Davis Cup team, also coached for many years at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, five-time coach of the year there. Um, he's also done some part-time consulting with WTA players, and he's got a genuinely deep and passionate tennis mind, always up for conversation. And that's why we brought him on today to talk about some of the most improved players in tennis in 2020. It was a whacked out season. It wasn't perfect by any means, but we saw a lot of players make a lot of strides. And that's why Mert is joining me on this podcast to break down some of the interesting stories. Uh, not just Igis Fiontek and not just Denis Shapovalov, a lot of players in between that made strides and improved themselves and set themselves up to become even better in 2021. It's a long discussion. It's a deep discussion. It's a fun discussion. And I hope you enjoy it. And here it comes. Hello, Mert. So good to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Good, Chris. Delighted to be here with you again. Yep, it's been a crazy year. I think we can um, we can definitely say that we've missed each other because we used to. Um, the listeners don't know this, but now they will know this that we've sat together in our little cubicles at Wimbledon. That's how we first met, and we really kind of um, had a good time with that. And I can say for sure that I missed it a great deal this year. And also, of course, maybe spending some time together in Paris would have been nice as well. But we're getting by, right? Of course, yeah, we're getting by, but but uh, you know when we, Chris, I think that was in 2014 when we first uh, you know had the, our our desks next to each other at Wimbledon, and we talked, and uh, since then, of course, Chris and I have become good friends. But uh, you're right; those two weeks, as the years went by, those two weeks at Wimbledon next to you have been two of my favorite uh, have become two of my favorite weeks of the year. So yeah. you're right; I miss yeah. I miss that this year too. Yeah, and I don't. I think I, I'm going to tell the listeners just how hard you work on your post-match reports. I've never seen anybody go through the details of a match point by point with more intensity than you do. Well, thank you, thank you, Chris. <laughs> and, and it shows in your work. You know what's going on, and that's why we're going to talk today because it, we haven't had a chance to do it at all this year. And I thought it would be nice to have a talk um, on a podcast format. That way, we can catch up and share some of our thoughts and opinions on what happened during the 2020 tennis season. You know, it's a short one. We didn't have all the tennis we would have liked, but we did have a lot of good tennis. And I wanted to, us to focus on one specific thing, and that is players who have made improvements. Um, whether we're talking about the most improved player of the year or not, I'm not really sure, but I know we're going to talk about players that made strides, why they made those strides, who those players are, 
what it might mean for them going forward into 2021, which is, I think is a big thing to look at. And of course, we've discussed this a little bit on Twitter and back and forth. So we have some of our ideas in front of us. And I think we can get started on the women's side if you're uh, okay with that, Mert. Sure. And I think we can start with a with a, an American woman by the name of Jennifer Brady. Had a fantastic season, a run to the U.S. Open semifinals, a title the week or a couple weeks before that in Lexington, and she really burst onto the scene as a player to watch. And she's relatively young and could have a bright future. So I wanted to ask you what you thought of the way she played this summer and what are some of the finer points of her game that you're able to pick apart and maybe can, can talk about? Yeah, Jennifer Brady's, uh, uh, Chris, you probably know this. I've been a Brady fan for a long time. She's a, she's a great uh, uh, competitor, okay, first of all. And usually when, um, I mean, usually when I, when I watch players, um, whether they're at a young level back when I was a coach or, or even afterwards, uh, when when I see them for the first time, when they're young, uh, there are a few things that I think one needs to look for in order in order to determine if an athlete uh, or a tennis player is prone to improvement in in the future or at an early age. Not that these things cannot be developed later in a in a tennis career, but uh, it's but if you have them early in you know in your fundamentals then you are more prone to advancement early in your career. And uh, one, of, one of those things is, you know, having a high IQ, high on-court IQ. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. other one is being, an, being a good athlete, you know, being fast, having quick legs. Uh, and uh, the third one is mental maturity in terms of sustaining high levels of concentration. In other words, you know, do you have up and downs during a match? You know, you, maybe you play a very focused first set, you win it close, but then you have a letdown and you find yourself down love four, one four in the second set before you start to say, okay, what's going on and recover, okay? And Jennifer Brady, you know, from the first moment that I watched her, this, well, I can't remember the tournament, but five, four, five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, no, actually it was more than that. But anyway, you know, I felt that she had, the, she, she had all those qualities together. You know, all, all the way to, in my opinion, of course, others may disagree, but all the way to 2017, 18, even 19, because uh, I remember watching her match against uh, Polona Herzog from beginning to end at the French Open. It was on one of the backcourts in, uh, in round one, and she lost a very close three-setter to her. And, uh, you know, until 2018 or 19, she used to lose a match or two here and there in the third set close, but the fighting was there, the, the sustained level of concentration was there, high IQ was there, and this is the year she put them all together. I know I went into too much, too much detail perhaps than, than, than you may have wanted, but uh, the, the, this is all to, to, to let you know that uh, this is the year, you know, in, in the last 12 months is when she was able to put it all together, all these different elements at a high level and, and offer it as a package and that and then she got the results that she got. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not surprised personally. Yeah, I, th- I think if you watch her play, it's easy to see that why she would have that success. And if you get to talk to her as well, and like those those things you mentioned, which by the way, let's go back to that a little bit. Um, the mental aspects of the game are always so big when we talk about players making improvement, and, and it's like. I've had this discussion with other people about players this year, and it seems like everything comes back to the mental aspects, which I, uh, so I'm glad that you struck on that first. And it, and it seems like 
in Brady's case, it's evolution for sure. It's funny because you talk about watching her three, four years ago. I definitely was aware of her, and I knew that she had reached the second week at the Australian Open in 2017. And, of course, that put, uh, when a player does that, she immediately goes on your radar. But I can't – and, again, she reached the round of 16 at the U.S. Open, and I'm always focused on these slam results. But um, it seems like this year – Compared to that year where she did have some success at the majors and got her ranking up, it seems like there's another layer. Like all these improvements were happening in her game and the comfort level that she had in her own abilities sort of all came to fruition this year. So she was able to take it another level further. But where do you see her now in terms of my eyes tell me she might be one of the 10 best players in women's tennis right now based on what I see, especially on hard courts. Do you feel I, I would agree no, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I mean, first of all, Brady is an overachiever, uh, in my opinion, over the years. If you look at her results and what she had as a as a as as natural talent coming in, uh, now she has developed them. But but at first, I always felt that she overachieved because of what a because of her high level of concentration throughout the match, fighting for each every single point, and at the same time remaining cool-headed enough to construct points with our high IQ. So players like that, Chris, uh, they, they, they in general tend to overachieve. They, they, they end up getting better results than what you think when you first watch them play or when you watch them play for three, four, five times, you form a certain opinion in your head. And these types of players, players like Jennifer Brady, are the kinds of players that keep, you know, week after week, or giving, putting out more than what you would expect. In other words, you're thinking, "Wow, okay, here it is again. She she did she did well here. She did." In other words, she keeps overachieving. And so this year, her her um, her results this year, I believe, is all of those aspects coming together. But uh, we're we're not done yet. I'm with you. She has she still has she she can still improve and and go even further. There's and. There's one thing I think that she might not be able to improve on, something that went so well for her in 2020, which is her serve. I have some stats for you before I ask you a question. She leads the WTA in service points one overall, second serve points one overall, first serve points one overall, and service games one. She was the dominant server on the tour this year. Did you notice anything different about how well she served? From my conversations with her and from my experience watching her, it seemed to be just a product of her developing comfort with the stroke in itself, the actual rhythm and I guess you could say rhythm and technique of her serve. It wasn't that it changed so much. It's just that she developed through hard work a really high comfort level. And then maybe the thing you mentioned, the tenant, the high IQ she has, if she's serving well, she's able to just impose her game that much more, use her big forehand. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about her in terms of how well she served and how well she plays in her service games. No, the, the, okay, a couple of things here. You know, when you say, when you give her service numbers like this, if, if one hasn't watched her play before and, you know, they listen to the numbers that you just gave, one would think that she has this huge, booming, uh, powerful serve, right? right? But that's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, she has she actually has a, a quite a versatile serve, if, they, if that term can be used for ser- serving. You know, she can, she can, she can on, a, on the deuce side, she can slice it out. She can hit a flat, hard serve down the tee, 
or she can even curve the ball into the body of the, of the returner. And uh, she's able to do that a lot on her first serve. And then on the second serve, she has improved her kick from, um, from in my opinion, from two or three years ago. She has, a, she has a bigger kick. You know, her serve has more of a, what do you call, junk on it once it hits the ground. Yeah. And uh, so those are the difference. But I think, Chris, that's also, that also has to do with just, you know, physically she's stronger yep. than she was uh, two or three years ago, too. So that's, the, the, you know, a, a player like that with good fundamentals, and she does have good fundamentals on the serve. Her knee bend, her hip rotation are all in place. So once uh, once a player like that, get become, you know, a, a, as they as they become physically stronger, there's their, their one weapon, the serve in this case, just keeps getting better because they don't have to make big adjustments due to their fundamentals being strong to begin with. Do you see her being as good on um, on clay or being having the success she might have on hard courts also on clay? I know she had a tough, yes. tough loss at Roland Garros to to the youngster Clara Tolson, but I, I mean, yes. these things happen. Yes, in retrospect, that is not a bad loss, uh, as we found out. I mean, that, that's that's not necessarily a bad loss, but. Yes, she can have uh, uh, success on clay. She she trains a lot on clay, so this is not a it's not strange grounds to her by any means. And she can generate top spin on both sides. But it's true that you know, non- nonetheless, nonetheless, it's true that if if she had to have her pick, I would think that she would still pick to play on hard court. So let's not go as far as saying that clay course is an actual surface for her, or that she she should do just as well. But let's do. Let's understand and, and uh, let's accept that she is capable of having success on clay as well. Current rank twenty four in the world. You think you think next year could be um, top twenty debut, maybe even top ten? Is that where you see this heading? Assuming she doesn't suffer from any major injuries, yes, I do. Uh, I would be. Uh, I, w- I would expect that actually. Yeah. That uh, that Brady moves into the top ten. Yes, I'm in that camp as well. Who else you want to talk about that's made some improvements on the women's side? Well, we can talk about uh, there are the obvious picks, right, Chris? I mean, there's uh, Sofia Kenin and Iga Swiatek, you know, two two players that uh, that have done well. And then there are, uh, well, you know, I would like to see what you think. Uh, maybe perhaps um, a player like Ons Jaber or Ribakina. Um, you know, those are those are good. Fiona Farrow to me is a good is a good pick. And then you have some players, Chris, and this, this is where it gets interesting. You have a player or two who have, if you look at their rankings or what they've done this year or how their rankings skyrocketed, you could say, well, they made great, big improvements, okay? But then it's usually because they did really well at one or two tournament, tournaments that, uh, that their rankings skyrocketed. I mean, how far do we go in calling that an improvement? I mean, is that a... Do we call that a sustained improvement over a year and now they're at the next level or should we wait a little bit more before making a, making an early call there? And, and, you know, a name that comes to my mind, there's Nadia Podoroska, of whom I'm a fan and you know, I, I love her game, you know, but, but she, she, uh, she, uh, she, she, you know, she, 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 she had a phenomenal uh, French Open and uh, not that she did badly in other tournaments. No, she didn't. But uh, but most of her uh, you know most of her skyrocketing in the rankings is due to French Open. So I don't know. I would like to hear your thought on that. What do we put uh, do we put a player like that in the same category 
as say someone like Jennifer Brady, who's shown sustained improvement over a longer period of time? Good question. I'd say you can have to put them in different categories there because, yeah, you don't really know what you're going to get from Podoroska moving forward. She, she does. She has a pretty blank slate in terms of tour level since you know really since her career started i think she's a great story and a, and a, definitely a player that clearly has improved because she learned how to win big matches on big stages of course. I mean, even this weekend we saw her at Linz and uh just exactly. today playing in the where they're in the they're in the where they in the semis today or the mm-hmm. quarters Actually, in the quarters today, I think. Yeah, they're in the quarters. Today is the quarters. Yeah, uh, we're talking about Linz, yes. Yeah, yes. but still, Podoroska, I mean, start, started rolling Garros at 131, is now headed for a top 50 finish. I think what sticks out to me about her, yes, it's a rankings improvement. I don't know if she's any different of a player than she was six months ago. It's hard for me to say, but she did win a lot of matches this year on all levels, and she did come, yeah. up, come up quite a bit in the rankings. And I, I could just say that um, she's a good example of what – the success because you know she won the Pan Am Games last year in 2019 and I don't think anybody really has that on their radar unless you're in South America but it was something that's that, right that opened yes. up a little funding for her and a little financial support and I guess just some factors came together where she's a player that's really hasn't been on anybody's radar and then suddenly just a couple things clicked into place for her career-wise and here she is and when I watch her play I say where has she been for the last three years because because she looks like she belongs at a pretty high level. But that being said, I usually defer to you when you talk about the nuts and bolts of somebody's game and what actually makes her strong. She seems like a forceful player, really comfortable on clay, um, like a strong, powerful, grinding baseliner. But other than that, I think I would defer to you if you you wanted to comment a little bit about what she brings to the table on the court. Um, strokes wise, because I'm not all that familiar. I haven't seen only, you know, a few matches of hers. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Chris, I love talking to you. So yeah, you have these tidbits of information that, uh, that are wonderful to hear. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know that she financially had doors open up for her after the Pan Am games in 2019. So I just learned something from you, which is why I love talking to you. But, uh, yeah, the, the, but back to your question about, um, about our game, you know, there, there, here's, here's another player who, in my opinion, has good fundamentals from a young age forward, obviously. And she's a, she's a baseliner, but at the same time, Chris, if you watch her play, she has variety also. She's not, you know, I think if we leave it at just one word, calling her a baseliner, and I know that's not what you meant by, by any means when you said that, but um, yeah. when we, when we call a player just, you know, a powerful baseliner or a, strong baseliner it tends to come across it, t- it tends to land to some ears as okay she's just a person who stays at the baseline moves laterally hits a lot of balls back right etc whereas in podoroska's case she can drop shot she can slice she can uh, move around and and create angles and she's not one to shy away from coming to the net if the ball lands short so uh, this you know while she's a baseliner she's open to um, you know uh, modifications of plan A or plan B in her game. I mean, if I if I had to be if I had to nitpick, um, I would say that second serve maybe is a bit slow and tends to land with a parachute, so to speak. You know, if she gets tight, even when she gets tight. But apart from that nitpick, I mean, and that is a nitpick. Apart from that, I'm I'm a big fan of her game. I just would like to see a bit more of what we saw at the French Open, and 
and, and this is not to say she failed at showing a bit more. No, not at all. She's she's just now in coming into the scene. So I just would like to see that kind of success sustained a little bit longer through a five, six, seven, eight month period before I can comfortably say that she has improved enough to arrive to the next level. I, I hope I explained that well. You know, the, it's uh, because I, I don't want it to come across as, you know, she, well, she's not there yet. Maybe she is. I just would, I, I, we just need more. This would be, uh, we would be in a better situation just within the context of, you know, improvement, talking about Podoroska, if we had this podcast, say, seven months from today, if, 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 if that explains well. It does. Yes. And if if maybe it was a post-pandemic period where we could watch her play a little bit more week in and week out, we just frankly haven't seen her that much on different surfaces, re- respond to different situations. But, you know, she's in our conversation, so I think that alone says a lot about her. And there are, other, there are other names that you mentioned that are intriguing. I mean, we could talk about Igus Fiontek. I mean, improved might not be the word because now she's pretty much, it feels like she's at the top of the game. Of course, that's another player we'll look forward forward to seeing some follow through yeah. because she's only played four grand slams in her career. And now she's having won one. There's going to be a lot of a different set of expectations that she's than she's ever dealt with. Um, I like to talk about her all the time because I just am fascinated by her as a player and a person. And clearly she did improve and make some strides in, in the, just in the sense that she was able to, you know, see her goals through and you could look at it big picture, but also small picture, because I remember talking to her at Roland Garros, and she talked about how she came out of the shutdown, out of the quarantine, with so many expectations because she felt, and I found this to be interesting, and maybe you know about it, maybe you don't, but she had so many expectations because she felt that a lot of players would be missing, and this would, would therefore present her with a great opportunity to do some serious damage at the U.S. Open and the Western and Southern Open and all those tournaments, she kind of struggled there because she had too much pressure on her. And she went back to work with her um, sports psychologist, which is also another big story everybody talks about with her, and her coach. And by the way, she has a really young team, which I think gives her good energy. They're both like in their late 20s, early 30s. There's a nice young energy with Fiontech. Anyway, she struggled at the U.S. Open. One month later, she's able to win Roland Garros in just the most incredible fashion that you could ever imagine. That's a woman with the strong mental power who was able to do what she did, especially the, the, my favorite part of her whole experience was the experience of her beating Simona Halep, which in and of itself was massive, but then backing it up with the wins over the qualifiers after that and then continuing to win all the way through in the final with, ne- with not even a significant letdown. So I don't know if she's in the improvement category, but... She's um, she's clearly remarkable. I don't know if you have anything to add about Sviontek, whether it's about her improvements no, or not. <laughs> no, you're right. It's it's uh, you know superlatives uh, galore when we talk about Sviontek. She's uh, there's no doubt that she's uh, she's both. First of all, in terms of improvements, she's showing continuous improvement for a while now. You know the fact that she may have won the Roland Garros may have put her up on the. Um, under the spotlight, but in terms of steady improvements, Shiontek has been doing that for the last two or three years. In fact, um, to be honest with you, she, you know, this this was this was a I don't want to say a long time coming. It was not, but at one point, I think almost every 
person who who follows tennis closely, like you and I or, or other people, week week after week, I think at one point we all expected uh, Shriontek to have a career week somewhere. I mean, I, I personally believed at some point in the future that she was going to vie for a major title or top five spot in the rankings, etc. Mm-hmm. We just maybe didn't expect it to come this soon. Yeah. Okay, but yeah. but but the but the, the the improvement, the package was there. She even when she won the juniors, you know, junior titles in the majors, she she already had a full package in terms of an all-around game, good serve, uh, full set of uh, ground strokes, slice, angle, drop shot, acceleration, top spin, flat, <laughs> taking it in the air, swing volleying. Flat block volleying, coming to the net, overhead, second serve kick, second serve slice. I could go on. Okay, she she had she had all of that, and she wasn't afraid to use any of these. Uh, she 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 would use them even when she was younger. So players like that, once they become stronger physically, once they once they start developing physically and becoming stronger, then that kind of game uh, translates well. You know, the, the age as well. Let's put it that way. Age as well. Mm-hmm. And you said you said a key, ex, key key expression there. You used the expression different set of expectations. So the only when once she had those good results in the juniors, I believe everybody had a certain set of expectation from Shion Tech, and she was actually responding pretty well. But you know, until that point where she where she just like you said, you talked to her and she felt some pressure. That's a different set of expectations there. But just like you say, apparently didn't take her too long to go to to cross over that barrier because she ended up going, she ended up winning uh, Roland Garros. So no, um, she, in my opinion, is someone that we should definitely consider in this category as someone who has not only made a huge jump, but someone who has shown sustained uh, improvement over a long period of time. You like to say that um. You like when players have an all-court game. Um, yes, <laughs> that that they can work. That um, they're willing to integrate an all-court game into their plan A is what you said. Um, yes, yes, I know. Down, I, I I beat I beat that phrase to to down too much. I agree. <laughs> and that that says a lot about a player's um, ability to improve. In your opinion, though, so where would you put Iga in terms of her ability to implement that all-court game? On a scale of one to ten, I'd put her right at one. In other words, she's at the top of that list. She's uh, she already had an all-around game integrated into her plan A. For her, it's just a, it's just a matter of practicing, um, you know, making her shots more concrete, gaining confidence in them, and as she f- physically develops, hitting them harder with more power, perhaps becoming more intimidating for the for the person on the other side of the court. This constant barrage of of uh, different uh, effects on the ball coming at them that they have to adjust to constantly and at the same time feel the pressure. And, uh, you know, she's not a player who's going to sit back and rally and expect you to make an error either. She's going to come at you. And, uh, you know, that all-around game pays pays off when you when you have uh, – when you when you are that type of a player. You know, you're not afraid to come to that. Chris, the thing is, a player can become – Later in the career, someone who has mastered an all-around game. You can become that later in the career, even if you're solely a baseliner at first. I can give examples on women's and men's sides from the in the past 
of players who were just baseliners when they first came to the scene. But then as they gotten older or as they improved, they, they developed an all-around game to, uh, to, to keep up. Uh, Shriontek is one of those players who already has the all-around game when she bursts onto the scene. So that's a, that's a big uh, that's a big advantage, you know. I, barring injury, I see her staying on on top for a long time. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, mm, it's a luxury to have that kind of game built into your foundation. I want to ask exactly. I want to ask you a little bit like a, a a curveball type question. But do you think that does she remind you maybe not stroke production, but in terms of the the way her game can be disruptive with the the balance of power and then craftiness of Andrescu at all? Like the way they kind of like can trip up their opponents by throwing a lot of different things at them? Yes. In, in, in the way you described it, it does. It does. She can, she can uh, throw off her opponent as much as Andrescu can. Although I would not exactly put them in the, in the exact same category and tell me if you agree with this or not. Um, Andrescu has a lot of variety, perhaps uses more variety than Shriontek does, even though Shriontek plays with variety too, but Andreescu's game is more based on variety, and Andreescu is not necessarily uh, someone who who is an attacking type of player with that variety. In other words, she can just win points on sheer touch. You know, a slice, a drop shot, or maybe a, a flat ball hit to a corner, followed by a mid-pace uh, sizzling slice down the line to the other corner, you know, giving the opponent different looks and forcing them into mistakes that way rather than necessarily attacking and putting the heat on them, which is what Shriontek does more often. Yep. Okay. So uh, I would say, yes, they, they can be the same. They can use this. They, they can remind each other on that. But uh, I would say their go-to uh, means of winning the point is slightly different, slightly nuanced between the two. Mm. Very good analysis there. And I threw you a curveball and you were ready for it. So if we move on, <laughs> I, I like Fiona Farrell. I thought, I thought um, you mentioned her name, so we'll move to her next yes. and, and briefly. Um, I like that she won the Palermo title with a cracked rib. I like that. That that's just the. How could you not like that, right? That shows some real toughness. And she exactly. was very she was very quiet about it. And it, in fact, it took her. We knew she had an injury, but it took her coach Emmanuel Plonk like until like yesterday on a podcast to reveal how just how bad the state of her injury was. So it shows she's very mentally tough. And I caught a few interviews and had the translations of her coach Emmanuel Plonk talking about her, saying that how she embraces the work how they want to enrich her toolbox every day, that um, he's happy th about the variety she uses. But um, she made big strides this year. It looks like France has another player that we can maybe expect to move up steadily towards the top 20, who knows. And then I think she benefited a little bit from Fed Cup the previous year, a very big victory for France. And I don't know, it seems like she's very good on the clay as well. It seems like if there is a surface for her, that would be it. But... Um, what drew you to her? Why were you watching her this year? And what did you like about what she was able to produce on the court? Yeah, I, I liked her uh, her game all all through the years. Ever since I started watching her from a very young age, she, uh, you know, when she was in juniors, uh, I followed her for a long time. I, I was um, I was uh, impressed with her game, but I always felt like um, you know mentally she was not that consistent. 
okay, in terms of constant, she would lose her concentration. She, I felt like she needed more confidence, you know, on the court. She needed more confidence that would only come with results and perhaps a bit more uh, mental maturity in terms of ups and downs during the match in the, in, in, in the mental intensity and perhaps just, just more consistent in terms of sustained concentration. You know, that's another thing that I keep coming back to on the court. And uh, I thought those were lacking. I, I thought she always put forth an all, a fairly good all-around game, perhaps not as much as the two players we've talked previously, but she was never reluctant about coming forward if needed neither taking the ball up in the air she if she had to she was mostly a baseliner yes but she was she used to always put uh, i mean on a basic level her serves her forehands were big she would put pressure on the opponents uh, that was never not there that was always there but her but it's true that her serves and her forehands this year especially since starting work i would say since starting to work with Plunk, who's a very good coach in my opinion since starting to work with her, her her serves and her forehands have gotten more punishing. In other words, they're not just the the, the couple of shots that she bases her plan A around to, to win points, but now, the, now they've gotten more punishing. They're more fearsome for the opponents. And because of that, she's become more confident and more mature in those couple of categories that I mentioned before. And she's able to sustain uh, that level, the, the higher level, longer on the court. And perhaps the dips in the up and down cycle of mental um, intensity throughout the match, the dips have diminished to the point where they may have disappeared in some instances. Okay, so I think in her case, the improvement came more on the mental side rather than the game side. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at our look at look at some of her 2017, 2018 results. She has some. You'll see some losses there that I don't think she would suffer today. You think that her the the changes in the efficacy of her strokes, the forehand being a little more lethal, you think that could also be mental? I mean, just having the confidence to 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 do what you know you can do well out there. Sure, I mean, Chris. In general, if you're an aggressive uh, type of player, especially when I say aggressive, I don't mean serving volleying or, or just coming to the net like crazy. No, that's not what I mean. But if you're if you're the kind of player who plays aggressive from the baseline and depends on two, three, four big shots in a row to win points, confidence matters even more to you than someone who's just a baseliner or someone who just plays serving volley regardless. So yes, for her, that you know, a little bit, little bit more confidence brought more uh, aggressiveness, which in then then brought then made her believe that she can go even more for on her serves and her forehands. And still win points. That's the way, at least I observe it from the outside. Of course, I would not know what goes on in her head exactly. And what do you like about Plonk? Is it is it just when you have the chance to hear him interviewed? I do like to listen to him. I think he's a good talker. Seems like a good guy. I, um, but, but what do you have on him in terms of what you like about him as a coach and why you think he's positively impacting her game? Yeah, I think related to what you just said about him, uh, I mean, the word that I hear from a few people that know him and the way he interacts with players is just he just he just he's just very good at uh, at forming a good uh, two way communication with the player. And he's good at selling, uh, you know, his his ideas to the player because the player has to buy into the ideas that a coach sells. Right. And I'm using buying and selling economic terms. Perhaps I shouldn't do that. But, you know, he's 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 a. 
his his knowledge first of all of the game is is at a very high level so when he when he speaks and just like you said he, he he's uh, he's quite intellectual about tennis when he speaks about tennis i think that's uh, that's an important quality to have if you want to sell it sell the ideas to your player and uh, the, what i hear from uh, again what i hear from others is that uh, he's very good at communicating one on one with a player and saying you know make making the play, convincing the player that uh, that a certain type of a game will uh, will be will work in the long term communication skills <laughs> communication skills is yes communicating in the language that the athlete understands is uh, is quite uh, an underrated skill in the world of sports i'm going to switch topics to another player that Really was fun to watch this year. I enjoyed her stated goal of reaching the top 20. And even though she didn't realize it, and I think she would have had it been a full season had we not had to skip five months, Owens Jabour was um, really fun to watch and really passionate, really creative player. Finishes at 31 from 77 at the start of the season. Had some breakthroughs all across the season, including starting the season in Australia, the first Arab player to ever reach a Grand Slam quarterfinal. I mean, this is something on paper that's a milestone. I know you're more interested in the nuts and bolts of what is making her game click. So I ask no, you... No, you are right. You are right. Yeah. That's a big deal, right, for, for Arab world and for yeah, Tunisia. Course. And again, she did, of course. she did great at Roland Garros. Um, I think five top 20 wins this season. She's really comfortable in her own skin right now and really confident and really embracing her leadership role in terms of, for, you know, for young women from from where she's from and inspiring others. And it shows and it's cool. It's a, it's a really exciting story. What do you think, though, about her her upside? And can she kind of continue this and, and actually attain that goal of hitting the top 20? And and why has she been able to have this success in the first place? Uh, clearly, she's got an imaginative, creative game, but I worry about players like that, like Owens and uh, Daria Kazakina, who struggled a lot about getting too caught up in the creativity and not getting the results. Um, but something about Owens is working out pretty well. Yes, yes, and, and uh, you, you, use, you use the adjective cool. Uh, you said it's cool, and uh, from what I hear from just about everybody who knows her, that uh, she's one of the coolest characters that uh, on the on the tour. And uh, how can you not be happy for someone like that? I have yet to hear one person say anything negative about Jabber. I don't know her personally, but uh, but she's uh, very well liked by um, by almost everyone on the tour. And so I'm very happy. That she has uh, she has had a good uh, good year and that she's moved up in the rankings in terms of results also and uh, and I've been a big fan of her game once again you know that you know these two or three things keep coming up but here's another player who has a variety of shots in her arsenal you know when she opens up uh, it's like that FBI agent who carries a, a, a suitcase with them and they open up the suitcase and they have a huge arsenal of gadgets and uh, and weaponry that they can choose to use, you know, to 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 complete their tasks. And yeah. uh, and Jaber is that kind of player. You know, she she carries around that uh, that big arsenal of uh, of uh, gadgets, you know, in her bag that she can pull out at any time and use in her game in her plan A. And she that's that's one of the reasons why that's a good player to watch. I mean, if somebody who has hardly watched. Uh, tennis and wanted to and came to me and asked, "Hey, who should I watch 
that would be pleasant, you know, a, a pleasant experience, a good, pleasant tennis to watch. And she would, her name would be one of the ones that I would mention. She's got, uh, she's, she's always fun to watch. She's fun to watch as a player also. Uh, you know, she, she tries hard. She wears her emotions on her sleeve. The, uh, again, uh, what, you, what she needed, in my opinion, um, was confidence. She had, an, she had a good all-around game always yep. and was confidence. And she got that confidence this year. You know, I, I don't want to speculate on, on how it happened. Surely results had something to do with it, but something else must have clicked too. And uh, the, at least in the in the interviews that I listened to, she has she's offered you know two or three different explanations for it. But to be honest with you, Chris, it was bound to happen. You know, you look at Jabber's game. At one point, you're expecting, okay, you know, this person is going to break into top 30, top 40, top 20. She's got that in her game. And um, so I'm not surprised, although I can't pinpoint with a, a total accuracy as to what exactly clicked at what point. It's fun to see players like her just kind of creating diversity across the tour where you sit down and watch maybe a you know round of 16 matches at a grand slam or and you get so many different types of players coming in and showing you what they can do and inspiring you to you know th- think about the game in different ways and different skill sets that can work and she's definitely got a got an interesting one to, um so I think that's why everybody's so excited about her to continue this move and, and also what you mentioned that she's a nice person, a player that doesn't have quite the um, interesting type of game, but is certainly um, one that's on her radar and one that made some big improvements is uh, Rybakina. Um, kind of like a powerhouse, yeah. real powerhouse of a player that um, has this easy power. She, You watch her, it's almost like she doesn't even have to put that much effort into her strokes to hit clean winners with regularity. She had a really nice season, won a lot of matches, especially early. I wonder if you had kept a close eye on her and, and given some thought about um, her future and what she might be able to accomplish if if she follows through on some of her success. No, you're, you're right. You explained it very well, actually. She's just this, this sustained power from the baseline, right? She pulls some shots from difficult positions or even from positions or even from uh, three or four meters behind the baseline where you, you go, wow, that, 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 that's some serious power from that far back. You know, that's the kind of uh, person who makes you say exclamation point statements like that. Um, she doesn't have that much variety in her game. You are right. But she's got that kind of power in game that where if she doesn't get injured and she stays confident in her game, she can remain in the top 10 15 for a long time although in my opinion for her to reach you know the finals of a major or win a major or maybe you know reach to number one two or three she would need to add just a little bit more to her game you know there would just baseline power you can uh, you can go high you can go quite far i just don't know if you can reach the the promised land, so to speak. But uh, and and I think her forward and backward movement, if I had to nitpick, needs to you know has room to improve. You know, I'm talking about if somebody hits a low slice short, say someone like Andreescu could pull that off. You know, where she would have to quickly move forward and reach down low to pick up a ball inside the base, inside the service line. You know, that first step going forward is not that quick. And, and same thing with the backward movement. You know, if she gets lobbed or 
or she if she has to all of a sudden back up, you know, to hit a deep shot. Yep. That that has yeah. you know there's a little bit of room to improve there. But again, I'm nitpicking here. You know, she's she her baseline game is quite strong. I see her like I said, I see her remaining highly ranked, but to 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 go just to that little notch forward, she needs just a little bit more in her game. That makes complete sense. That's that's what I see too. I kind of put her in that sort of like a Pliskova category, a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit like Madison Keys, where you can just she can take the racket out of your hands, but needs to find a little more consistency. And I think the consistency, like um, like you, the consistency might come from the movement and be able to to cover certain areas of the court and and not be exposed and be that way she'll be able to expose her, or to. Um, impose herself a little bit more but an interesting player yeah, the two players the two players you just mentioned are, are actually good they're good examples also yes sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you there. not at all not at all um so there's other names and I, I think we have to move to the men but i just before we go leave the women alone i want to say azarenka was amazing this year she we've talked about that she's maybe in a different category a return to top form category rather than an improved player Whatever it was, she's one of the biggest inspirations of the season, um, overcome so much and done so well, get back to a Grand Slam final. So we didn't leave her out. We just kind of think she's for another discussion. We also liked Leila Fernandez, maybe uh, maybe the sack attack, Maria Sakari, and I also throw in uh, yes. Barbora Krejcikova, who's been amazing and is like finally having mm-hmm. some success in singles. So a lot of players to choose from on the WTA Tour. We just took the, the ones um, that really came to our mind first. Um, they're by no means are they the only players. The ones we discussed are the only players that made great improvements. There were many, um, but we move on to the men, and we start with. I'd like to start with, if it's okay with you, Andre Rublev, because I want to hear what you can say about why he's doing what he's doing, wh- how he's been so dominant, and maybe if there are any weak spots and what he could do to be even better. No, the, you know, Rublev is the is the most improved player of the year by far. Uh, I think most people will agree. Uh, some may not agree that it's by far, perhaps, but uh, certainly in most people's books, he's the most improved player. And you you you've got to be happy for for the guy. He's a he's a very uh, he's hard worker, fun to watch on the court. Used to get mad a little bit too much, or used to exaggerate some of the some of the emotions on the court. He's still emotional on the court. I'm not. Sure. I think he has matured in that sense, though. And in my opinion, that's the biggest difference, Chris. Because in a minute, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say something that's probably not so popular. You know, that, like I'm gonna uh, put forth an un, unpopular opinion, so to speak. But but before I get there, I think it, in Rublev's case, the the mental. Uh, the mental, how should I put this? Reservedness has has improved. You know, he's he's mentally more reserved. His ups and downs are not as dramatic as they were before, and then uh, he's he's able to recover from bad patches a lot quicker. And uh, and I think I think it helps his uh, his game. You know, he's because uh, he's an intelligent guy. Rublev is a highly intelligent guy. And and it and it should reflect onto the court, which I thought in the past at some points that it would not that it wasn't reflecting on the court because he would be a little bit too upset in the in what happened the point before, or he would be talking to his box too much, and I felt that that would that took away from his um, his ability to think clearly for the next point or for the next two points. So I actually used to think that uh, he was underachieving 
you know, the, the, if you ask if you ask me this question back in 2016, 17, 18, yeah. I, I, I would yeah. probably answer, well, you know, he's, he's a bit of an underachiever. He's got so much potential. He's, he's an intelligent guy. He should do better. Okay, all that is behind now. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's done very, very well. Now, the, 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 to the unpopular opinion part. Let's hear it. I actually still think he's not getting the best out of his his game. And what I, what I mean by that is he's got this huge forehand, right? One of the most revered forehands on the, on, the, on the tour. And I think sometimes he doesn't even flatten it out as much as he could. In other words, he's got, he does have some forehands. If, with a forehand like that, in my opinion, he should be hitting more, even more winners than he has now. And there are some instances where he hits a big forehand, but it's the kind of forehand that he catches above the hip level, for example, and one that he can just flatten out for a big winner. And instead, he still goes for a hard topspin winner. Now, he might still get the winner, and chances are even if he doesn't get the winner, the opponent is in such trouble that the next ball will land even shorter, so then he can hit the winner on the next shot. Uh, but I feel like he's passing up on some shots where he can actually put it away with uh, with still going for some topspin on the ball instead of just flattening it out, which he can on his forehand. Where he has improved tremendously is he always had a nice backhand down the line acceleration too, which was underrated because because of his forehand, people would not talk about that uh, that shot that he has. He's hitting that with more consistency. And actually, he does flatten that ball out. In other words, when he wants to accelerate the backhand down the line, that ball sometimes just he just flattens out, and that ball just glides through the court. And when it hits the court, when it bounces on the court, it doesn't lose any speed and just keeps going because it flattened it out. But uh, but but on the forehand, he he doesn't do that enough even today, in my opinion. Another thing that he could even do better is follow some of these shots to the net behind. Okay, he so sometimes he chooses to win points hitting five, six, seven big shots rather than hitting two or three big shots and add to the second or third one when the opponent is fully stretched and you know that the opponent is just going to barely float that ball back in the air. Instead of moving in and catching it in the air and putting the volley to the open court before the opponent recovers to the middle, he chooses to let that ball bounce. And by the time, because he has such confidence on his forehand, he chooses to let that ball bounce and hit the next forehand, but by that time, the opponent is kind of back to the middle of the court and ready for the next defensive shot. And if he's playing against someone who's super fast when he get, who gets a lot of balls back, that can spell trouble. He didn't. He hasn't found himself in that position too much, so he's winning. And I think he's he's going to he's going to continue to win. But I think the sky's the limit. The point I'm trying to make here is. Rublev can go all the way up to the top, in my opinion, all the way to number one if if he just puts everything together. You know, that's of course that's just my opinion. It could be an unpopular uh, view with some Rublev fans. I don't know, but uh, but I feel like he's uh, he's he still has room to room to go forward. Well, I tell you, a lot of Rublev fans aren't going to be upset that you say he can go all the way to the number one. <laughs> that's for sure. No. no. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I did, I did say that in the in the critical way. In the, like, it may come across critical, as in, you know, what, he needs to do this and that. No, I mean, he would know. Him and his coach would know far better than any of us what to do. But watch, watching from the outside, I feel like he's still not getting the full potential of his strokes. You know, he 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 should 
Anyway, we'll see. We'll we'll see what what's to come in the. I think if he stays injury free, I think he's a he's a name to vie for the top spot in the ATP in the two or three years to come. I love your analysis on this, and and this is why I was looking forward to this conversation, and I want to uh, stick with it a little bit because first of all. Um, closing at the net, I think when you have a guy that's as good with the forehand as Rublev is, it's a no-brainer that he should at least on certain instances open up an advantage and take full advantage of, of what he has in terms of winning a, winning a point and getting a guy on a stretch. At that point, if you say you have a 70% probability of winning the point, you could make it much higher by closing and knocking off that next volley rather than dropping back and letting the guy get away with a slice and then kind of re-neutralizing a rally, which I think is a play that too many players make across the men's and women's tours all over tennis, and, and it's frustrating. So that's a good point for, yes. for sure. And his forehand is so accurate that he can he can really know when to approach behind it, I would think, relatively easily. Like, he knows that the shot he's going to hit. He knows what the effect it's going to have. He can almost be ready to pounce as he hits it. Um, and the, the, other, the other point... You, you made about flattening the ball out, which is the one I was most interested in. How hard would you say it is for that? Does that take a little bit of working with a grip change as you, as you strike your forehand? Um, is it a, you know, are there some players that do this better than others, you know, flattening balls out? Or would you say it could be for some guys just something they can't do or maybe aren't comfortable enough and wouldn't be able to do it as well? So why try? For some players, it does require a grip change, like a slight grip adjustment, which can be um, a very cumbersome thing to work on. So I can understand that, but not in Rublev's case. Rublev already has a, he can flatten out the forehead. If you watched five or six of his matches, you've seen him do it already multiple times. Okay. He just doesn't do it enough. I mean, he has that. This is a shot that he has in his arsenal. Uh, uh, Chris, to me, if Rafael Nadal can hit a flat forehand yeah. the way he prepares for the ball, anyone with a, with his grip or less extreme grip than he has, and Rublev, in my opinion, has a less extreme grip, uh, should be able to hit a flat forehand. Okay, yeah. I mean Nadal, as much as we we champion the amount of top spin that he puts on the ball, when Nadal needs it, he, he smacks that ball. It flattens out, and then it's just this big, booming flat ball that comes at you. He doesn't do it a lot, but he can. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. Rublev should be able to do that too. And and and, and, and I have seen him hit flat, flat with his grip. It should not be a problem. No, I think he should be able to do it. Okay, that's great. Let's move on. Um, a Frenchman, I think, might be headed to the top ten, and his name is not Joe Wilfred Songa. Um, Hugo Ambert. <laughs> Hugo Hugo Ambert is. Damn, is he a talented player? And I like him because because of his leftiness, because of the the nastiness of his can opener serve that can basically take a player far off the court and open up the options of the forehand for him instantaneously. But I also like his touch. I like his poise. I think he's very driven and very mature at a pretty young age. And now he's made his top thirty debut, won his first title this year. He's a guy who's made some improvements, wouldn't you say? Yes, and he's got the size. And the power to uh, to have a to have high potential. Let's put it this way. I mean, you know, you you have always you have a generation of French players every 10, 15 years, and there's always a group of young players that come that come forward, and you always say among them, 
Okay, they're all good. And they all end up doing fairly well. You know, they all, the, most of them end up going top 30, top 50, top 10, top 20. Yep. And, uh, yeah. and, and, you, and you keep thinking among those, there's that one or two players who have special, um, special um, assets in their game. And I feel like, Umber, and I think this is what you were also trying to uh, verbalize, is that is, I feel like Umber is one of those players. You know, he's, he's got uh, different uh, special uh, tactics that he can uh, that he can take up thanks to his uh, ver- thanks to the variety in his game. His serve, he can create power. He's he's got good technique all around. So a little bit awkward in some shots, you know, a little bit unorthodox perhaps to some. Yep. But the contact yeah, point yeah. is always very sound. And then his size, he's you know he's six two. He moves well. He's got the ingredients to have a to have a very good strong career, a, a, a very dangerous career for, for his competitors, for his colleagues. He's 22 years old. You know, again, you know, we're all, of course, we're assuming that these players remain injury-free. You know, if, if Umber stays injury-free, he's got the kind of game that could create, that could cause havoc to top players in the, in the ATP. I, I agree with you. There's a lot of potential there. The word that comes to mind for me is um, he has a disruptive game. Guys, guys are not having fun out there against him. Chris, if I have to use that in one of my pieces, do I have to give you credit for it, or or, or can I just use disruptive without? A little footnote, a, a little footnote would be good. <laughs> that's a wonderful way to explain it. I mean, that's that's what in one word you explained what I tried to explain in fifty-four sentences just before. Yeah. I believe he's a top ten player. I I actually people think I'm a little bit crazy, but I believe. After watching him beat Felix Ogiel, you see him at Wimbledon on court number two in 2019. You were probably um, working on something else at the time, or maybe you were even out there, but uh, we were sitting apart. But um, I think he can be great on no, grass. I missed that one. I think, yeah. I think yeah. he, he can be great on grass. Um, his game, it makes sense for his game, obviously, the serve, the touch. His dropper was great that day. I think it's, in general, pretty great, his touch. And I, th- I just think, like, um, yeah. And he's go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, it just seems like that surface for him, and as it does for a lot of French guys, makes sense. I think I really believe he can be. I can see him in the semis, final, maybe even winning that tournament someday. Yeah, and and he's you know it's, it's one of the he's one of these players, these lefty players who, at least in my opinion, has a better backhand than than a forehand. I mean, he's, his backhand is he can accelerate very very well with his backhand. He can hit that short angle with his backhand. He can slice it. Uh, you know, he's, he's got he's got even more variety. And it's a funny trend. I mean, there there are a lot of left-handed players throughout the years who end up having you know more solid backhands than they do forehands, which is a, which is an interesting trend that probably requires its own topic to discuss. But he's uh, uh, not that his forehand is bad by any means. He's got a good forehand too. But that backhand is is something to watch. I also feel that he got stronger. This year compared to mm-hmm. last year, he's starting to look. Um, he's starting to fill out and be a little bit more of an intimidating presence, which is never a bad thing, right? No, oh, for sure. Yes, agreed. He's uh, and he's and he's prone to getting stronger too, right? He's he can still get stronger. He's twenty two. So, yeah. yep, yep. Um, I think we got ten fifteen minutes left, so which is good for us. I think only maybe two or three more names on the ATP side. One of my favorite players. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm going to um, I'm going to admit this, but I, I love what Denis Shapovalov brings to tennis. I 
I know that it's growing pains with him, and some people out there want him to do more earlier, especially based on his the way he broke out so so amazingly. I think it was 2017 when he beat Nadal at the, in Montreal and made the semis of that Masters. But, you know, it takes time. I just think he made a lot of strides this year in the in terms of his mental toughness, the work he's doing on his on his psychology, psychological aspects of the game. And I think he actually organizes his game a little bit better now, has a little bit more patience. It's not all coming together at once, but I feel like he has a little bit more tolerance and, and a little bit he just gets – he's a little less lost out there at times. So I wonder what you thought of Shapovalov's year, which was good by some standards. He got the quarterfinal at a slam. He got a top-10 debut. Um, how do you see his performance, and do you think he was a vastly improved player? No, I think his, his improvement is – I know, just like you said, some people, it seems, can never be happy with him, but uh, I think his improvement is right on track. Uh, he's had a Thank very you. good year. Uh, and 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 in my opinion, his uh, his his game is improving at the right rate too. You know, it's it's, it's just really he's adding a little bit to his game. You know, people forget that. Uh, or let me just stop here for a second and and uh, Chris remind the listeners and you and 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 myself too of what we said about Rublev just five minutes ago, right? About the about why I felt he could do even better because he sometimes he doesn't follow up his shots to the net. When he has them, again, let me re-stress or re-emphasize that when I say that, I don't mean I don't. I'm not asking for the player to become a volleyer by any means. In fact, they don't even need to change their plan A. You know, if if they're baseliner, but when the opportunity is there, you've got to show your opponent that you can come to the net and put the ball away, so that the next time they land the ball to the middle of the court short, they're going to feel that fear of you hitting the ball to the corner, coming behind, and when they're on the stretch, they're going to have to feel the stress of having to come up with a big, deep, high lob or having to come up with an incredible shot or you're going to be at the net to put it away. But if you don't come to the net, you stay back, then they're not under that pressure and all they're going to do is just stretch, extend their arms, float it back, and get back to the middle of the court without any pressure. Okay, that's the point. That's so. In other words, following up your good shots hit from inside the court to the net is not just to win that point, but it's to create a long-term effect. Okay, you know, long-term impact on your opponent uh, to make them feel the pressure over the course of the match. So coming back to how uh, Shapovalov versus Rublev, here's an example: Denis Shapovalov who. For two or I would I would I would even say two and a half years and since two, beginning of 2018 he does this consistently. He doesn't have great volleys. Okay, they have improved, but his volleys are not super high level volleys by any means. But he has improved. But but he's he has not been reluctant about approaching the net when the opportunity presents himself. If his opponent he lands a short ball and he's able to move in and hit a sitter from a little bit behind the service line or a little bit inside the baseline, Dennis follows that up to the net. He doesn't miss a beat on that. He follows it up to the net, okay? Sometimes he wins points, sometimes he loses points. As the years go, went by, to, she started this doing consistently in 2018, 2019, 2020. Once you make that commitment, Chris, then you can focus on improving your volleys too. And his volleys have improved. 
He's not a natural volleyer by any means, but he's volleying a lot better now than he did in 2018 because he's willing to come up there. You know, he's willing to take that um, initiative and add to that package, add to that uh, consistency or to that uh, will, add Mikhail Yuzhny and add the help of the psychologist this year. Yep. And here you have yeah. someone who now has that maturity and who is doing well against Pablo Carreño Busta in the U.S. Open. The two sets that he lost, 7-6, 7-6. He came to the net 20 times and won 18 of those points. I counted it myself, so so I know. He came to the net 18, 20 times, won 18 of those points. Those are the two sets that he lost. I'm not counting the set that he won 6-0, for example, the fourth set. Okay. Same thing against uh, David Goffin. Um, where did they play? Um, remind me. He played. He beat David Goffin in um, also U.S. Open. I thought. That, okay, yeah, that's right. Also at the U.S. Open. I'm sorry. Yes, the the two key sets of that match, the first two sets, he did the same thing. I can't remember the number now. I remember the one at, against Karen Obusta clearly, but the one against Goffin was also something outrageous, like a I don't know, 15 out of 16 points maybe that he comes to the net wins. Why? Because he prepares them well. You know, he comes into the net with big shots to the corners, whereas in the past, Chris, before 2018, and I'll stop after this one because I know I went on too long, but before 2018, he used to just hit these big shots from the baseline and not follow them to the net. In other words, just like try to finish the point with spectacular winners. Yeah. And over, yeah. over time, it didn't work. But now he's willing to come to the net, and guess what? He's successful despite not having banner five-star top-notch volleys yet. Okay, so there, you know, there's a guy who's improved his game because he's willing to add that extra ingredient into his plan A. Very well said, and that—that's something you could see improve drastically over the years. As you say, he's not completely comfortable up at the net, and it's not just the volley. Maybe, maybe it's also situationally being comfortable with players, what they're going to do, and all the different situations you find yourself in. I mean, it's tense up there, right? To to make a good volley and finish a point, it's some, sometimes you try to be too perfect. Sometimes you you try to go behind a guy. And it, it's not only about the stroke itself, but it's about um, organizing and managing the situation and, and the opponent. And all these things, like you said, it's such great news that he's doing it and that he's going to keep trying to do it. And you think three, four years down the road, he's going to be doing this stuff without even having to think about it. Exactly. And also, you know, for the, 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 Chris, you hit it, you hit the nail on the coffin right there. Yeah, without having to think of it, because it's going to come naturally. And you probably kept up with this. His, for example, his serve, wide serve to the ad side, right? He's a, Dennis is a big fan of one-two punch. He wins a lot of points on a nice serve followed by a big second shot. And, uh, you know, on the serves to the ad side where he pulls the opponent to the outside with his lefty serve. In the past, he used to just get a return and go for the winner, make or miss. But nowadays, you'll see him open up the court and place the ball deep to the other corner and go to the net behind. And I didn't keep up with the stats, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that his one-two punch point wins are, have a very high percentage, even in the matches that he lost. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I, you know, I just wanted to add that in there. No, it's great. That's this is this is why we're chatting. I, I love it. I'm I'm not only am I putting out a podcast, but I'm getting a lesson in tennis tactics, which is cool. <laughs> Um, last name, um, if you're cool with that, can we talk about Yannick Sinner? Cause I honestly watched him a lot and blown away. 
but I don't really know how to like break down his game and say what it is that's so good about it, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm hoping you can help me out in this regard a bit. What makes Yannick Sinner so good? Yeah, he's, he's just incredibly solid from the baseline, isn't it? I mean, and, and again, here's, you know, we were talking about Shiontek earlier. You were you knew it was coming at some point. And here's another player. I think most of us who follow tennis weekly do feel like, you know, at some point this, guy's go, this guy was going to make the big jump. And maybe he hasn't even made the big jump yet, but we don't know. But, we, we, you know, it's, he was screaming that uh, he was coming to the scene. And uh, he's just super solid from the baseline and super cool in the head. You know, mentally, he's just, he he comes across really, really calm. I mean, I don't want to say he comes across like the second coming of Bjorn Borg. Borg was at a different level. The guy looked the same, whether it was 5-love, 40-love up or down, or 5-5 in the tiebreaker of of the third set, one set all. Uh, you know, he looked the same, Bjorn Borg did. But uh, I, I don't want to go that far with Sinner, but Sinner's cool-headedness is a weapon in and out of itself. You know, a lot that there are some players like that who just remain super cool on the court. They don't necessarily do anything spectacular on the court, okay? Uh, Sinner doesn't have... You know, this, Sinner is very impressive. I want to say he's impressive. Physically, his footwork is impressive. His baseline stroking and consistency are impressive, but uh, he doesn't really offer anything stunning. You know, what he doesn't he doesn't make you go, wow, okay, yes. over and over again yeah. during a match. Hugo Umbar might be able to do that, but uh, but but Sinner doesn't necessarily do that. But he's just, it's just a steady from the steady no uh, silly error, you know, slash in between all those words, no silly error type of game. Okay, and uh, and he just he just breaks you down. He's he's very good. He's very very good. I hope he uh, I hope he um, improves. I hope he develops a little bit more power. I hope he becomes a, just a slightly more uh, all around player. Uh, I'd like to see him win more points, even more points on on off his first serve. But uh, he's young. He's got many years to to go. So yes, it's it's one of these players that that's just going to keep winning unless unless they suffer from an injury. Yeah. Of course, you have to bring that up, and you never know. I know that um, when I think about his game, a lot of people talk about his backhand, how powerful it is, how much spin he puts on it, and you definitely can see it when you watch him. I guess I was struck watching him play Nadal at Roland Garros, how little margin he played with and how consistent he was with that little margin. He really put Nadal on the stretch, on the run quite often, and I do love that he's not afraid to be aggressive. And of course, the 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 key thing that you mentioned is his mentality, his his poise. <laughs> Even after the match against Nadal, he was he cracked me up because he wasn't pleased with that loss. He wasn't pleased that he was the only guy that actually competed with Nadal over a full set at Roland Garros. He was kind of like he kind of believed that he had the tactics and the game plan to have success, and he was disappointed that he didn't. I thought that was impressive for a young guy. So. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's wild how you. I don't know if it comes from just family upright, family raising, or if it comes if it's just that if some people are born with it or what. But just some players seem to be, you know, more level headed on the court than uh, than others. You know, and he's one of those guys who's uh, level headed. And you know, you mentioned about his backhand, the the the, the topspin on his backhand. 
And yet at the same time, you can also flatten it out. You can also short angle it, you know, mm. so yeah, I mean, it's just very solid. Mert, he was 553 at the start of 2019. He's had really no problem getting up to where he is right now. 44, about to bid for his first title in Sofia tomorrow, which will be exciting. That'll give us something to do tomorrow. And um, Yes, and Chris, uh, I wonder if somebody who doesn't know what you just said, which is incredible, if somebody if they watched a match of Sinner, say, in the beginning of 2019, and then they go out and watch tomorrow's match without knowing the, 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 the context, if they would be able to tell that it's two different players. I mean, it's the same player, same person, of course, but, you know, there's a world of difference between Sinner of 2019, beginning 2019, and now. Mm. Yeah. What, what do you think? Do you, do you, are you pretty high on his future? Do you, I mean, obviously we need to see more, more matches from him. He's gotten probably 30 at the ATP level. He's barely even cut his teeth at the slams, although the achievement at Roland Garros was certainly impressive for a debut. But do you see, um, him really being a top player and do you think he can continue to rise because he really has been flying up the rankings with nothing stopping him do you think he next year he goes from 44 to say 20 maybe even 10 with the same um, yeah, ease i don't know about 10 but uh, 20 is within reach however i would have no problem at all if he doesn't reach 20 next year but reaches it in three years and develops you know slowly in solid increments, in other words, really absorbing each level of improvement slowly, taking its time, taking its time because he's still young, then making big jumps. Again, as long as he remains injury-free, I'm perfectly fine if uh, if the improvement from this point forward in terms of results and rankings comes at a slower rate than what they have come so far. It's okay if he doesn't reach top 10 next year or, or even top 20. Yeah. Is his game improving? Yeah. Is he remaining injury free? And is he and is he slowly getting better, but better and better results, advancing more and more in certain tournaments? If he's if he if he does that at the end of 2020, I mean at the end of 2021, when we look back, if he's done that, he's right on track. Yeah, very good point. You got sometimes you just got to sit back and let these guys soak up the experiences, like Shapovalov yeah, has been doing. Early. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's too early to tell. Shapovalov is a good example. It was too early to say so. I mean, people came up with wild expectations three, four years ago. But uh, but let's see how he does now. You know, and there are other examples of that too. So, yeah. You know, there, before we before we go, there's a now these are just four men that we mentioned that made significant improvements and that could continue to do so in 2021. There are other players. These aren't the only ones. These are just the ones we had time to talk about and decided to talk about. But, I mean. Uh, Alejandro Davidovich Fokin has been a fun player. Carlos Alcaraz of Spain has been getting a lot of conversation after winning some challenger titles. He's just 17. He looks like a beast. Lorenzo Musetti has been good. There's tons of players. Anything you want to add before we close the ATP discussion? Yeah, no, no, very short. I mean, whether, you know, like you said, we, 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 we we don't have time to go in depth into these guys, but these guys also deserve mention. Definitely. I mean, Alcaraz is a, Boy, he's, he's, like you said, a beast. He's, he can hit that big two-handed backhand down the line. You know, he can he looks to control the baseline. Maybe a less impressive version of uh, Rublev in terms of those two occupying the, the big places they do in their baseline game in terms of, you know, the their uh, backhand down the line in the big forehand. There's Musetti, like you said. You know, fine. T- he's got fine touch when the timing is right, but he also has good power when he needs to accelerate. And he's steady when steady is required. 
uh, one-handed backhand fetishists will love watching uh, Musetti. Yeah. Corda, you know, that's another guy, Seb Corda, yep. right? I mean, his, his, his first serve is much improved. He's clearly stronger physically. Uh, he had a career-defining French Open. He just won a challenger in Germany last week, and he wasn't even really pushed hard in that challenger. I think I think it was down a set point in his first-round match in the first set mm. against uh, Thomas Machach, but um, he rolled through to, to to grab the title there. So these are guys to watch. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of players, you know. And finally, I'll end with a kind of a statement slash question to get your opinion, but. I think five or six years ago, I was actually worried about the state of men's tennis, that it would be a little bit, I guess, lame for a little while after the big three got out of the game. And um, I didn't see like a really superb, bright future of exciting young players. And now there's like too many names to count. I feel like the next five years are going to be ridiculously exciting with guys we've already seen do damage like Tsitsipas. I mean, Dominic Team's kind of coming into his own. Um, Medvedev's on the picture now and then all these young guys we're just talking about it's feel, it feels like it's going to be really really fun ATP I'm not worried about the future at all no I agree with you and, and if, if you the only people who are going to be worried about the future of ATP Chris are people who are expecting the quality of tennis at the level of uh, the big three you know because because let's face it even today the big three are still ahead of the all these guys that we just counted yeah. I mean, you know, Novak, Novak and Rafa and Roger, whenever they play in the slams, they're still reaching the semifinals and finals without too much trouble. OK, if, if you look at the last six uh, set or seven majors. But if you're looking if you if you're looking for a, a nucleus of male players who have quite variety in their games, you know, left handed, right handed, attacking players, baseliners, touch. Uh, and also colorful personalities. This is a very good group. So no, I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm on, I'm on your boat. I, I'm not worried either. <laughs> good. It's good to have you there. And and um, <laughs> what I think is cool is that they're all still facing the big three, and so that's really nice. They can get inspired. They know what they're up against. They know what true greatness is. They've all seen it when they were young, not even in the pro game. And so, I know it's um you know at the very least it'll help them know they'll have a vision in their mind of how good you can be and it's funny because you talked about these guys closing points at net like rublev and you think about a guy like nadal and how his game has evolved over the years and how he's been able to do all these things and he never misses a chance exactly if it's the right. right i mean yeah yeah he's a great example if it's the right decision for him to close out a point at the net he's in there he knows he has to take care of it against certain players and he's learned it maybe yeah. maybe it wasn't his first instinct but he learned it because he knew down the road it would make him uh make him better so that, that's right even a more blatant example for those who want to go that far back is matt willander uh watch one of willander's matches in 1982 when he won the french open and then watch when he played in 1988 in the three major finals and you'll see that big difference there yeah. too Good, good one. I wouldn't even have known about that. I'm going to have to go look at some of his tapes now. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you, Mert. Um, I'm going to close it here. I just want to say thanks. It was very sad not being able to spend some quality time together this year, but this little podcast makes up for some of it. And I just want to say um, I appreciate it so much, your insights, your passion for the game, whether it's from the past and the, I mean, you're funny because you're shy and you never even told me that you were a Davis Cup captain back in the day. And it took me like I had to pry at you to tell to talk about some of the successes you've had in your career. And I, I think that says a lot about you, how you you're very humble and you just want to talk about the tennis that you're watching rather than yourself. But um, 
your insights show how much you know about the game and how much passion you have for it. And I very much appreciate that. And I'm so thankful that you spent some time with me today. And hopefully we'll do it in person next year. Thank you, Chris. It was, it was a delight. And my daughter, Erin, says hello to you. Hey, she says one of the coolest guys that she ever met. So there you go. <laughs> That's great. Um, so thank you so much, Mert. And um, let's do it again soon. We should. This is really the first time I've just had you on. And it was very enlightening. I, f- I felt like I got a tennis lesson. Um, so that was cool. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right. Stay out of trouble. We'll talk soon. Take care. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord podcast is a wrap. Special thanks to Mert Ertunga for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Look forward to hanging out with you in the media room in the not too distant future. Thanks to everybody for listening. We appreciate your support. Want to let you guys know you could find us on Apple Podcasts, and we'd love it if you did. Just get into your Apple Podcast, type in Lucky Let Cord Podcast, and voila, you will find us there. Be great if you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. You can also keep in touch with Tennis Now on social media, facebook.com slash tennis now, on Twitter, at tennis underscore now, and of course, on the web, where we're always throwing up new content at www.tennisnow.com. Appreciate you guys listening. I want to wish you all the best for the rest of 2020. Stay safe, stay proud, and we'll talk to you soon.